We're going to look at different names or titles that are associated with Jesus at his birth. And as Bo mentioned today, we're going to look at his, his first name, the name Jesus. Uh, both Mary and Joseph were independently of one another told by an angel, this is what you're supposed to name your, your son. In Luke one thirty one, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and says, you're going to get... You're going to conceive, it's going to be from the Holy Spirit, and you need to name your son Jesus. And in Matthew one twenty one, Joseph is considering divorcing Mary because she is pregnant, and he's not the father, and he's considering divorcing her. And an angel appears to him and says, don't do that. What's in her is from the Lord, and I want you to name him Jesus, and we're told why. Name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Name him Jesus because... He will save his people from their sins. And so we want to look at the second half of that. Jesus is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew name Joshua. It means God saves, God being the uh, Yahweh saves, the, the personal name of God. So Jesus means Yahweh saves. To save is to rescue someone from danger and to restore them to a place of safety or well-being. There's kind of a, a dual action there. It's saving someone from danger and restoring them to a place of safety or well-being. And a sin or sins are acts contrary to the will of God. So if you put all of those pieces together, if we were going to expand that statement from the angel to Joseph, name him Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, because he's going to rescue his people from the dangers of acts contrary to the will of God, And he's going to restore them to a place of well-being. Name him Jesus, Yahweh saves, because he will rescue his people from the dangers of living contrary to the will of God. And he will restore his people to a place of safety and well-being, the dangers that he doesn't save us from. Jesus doesn't save us from the consequences of our sins on, on an earthly level. He doesn't save us from the consequences, the earthly consequences of the sinful choices that we make. But for the grace of God, we reap what we sow. That's a biblical principle. And Jesus, God rarely interrupts that, particularly when it comes to the circumstances here on the earth. Uh, An apple seed has the potential for an apple in it. If you look at it backwards, an apple is contained in an apple seed. The only thing that needs to happen is the seed needs dirt and water, and apples will be produced. You reap what you sow, and the same thing is true with our choices. The the fruit or the consequence of the choice is inherent in the choice itself. So if you take a, we'll take a public sin, something that we can all see, drunkenness. That's a sin. It's a sin on your 21st birthday. It's a sin if they win or if they lose. It's a sin on New Year's Eve. It's a sin. It's always a sin. So we don't do that. We don't get drunk. If you do get drunk, you will be hungover. It doesn't matter if you pray for God to bless the beer before you drink it. If you drink too much, you're going to be hungover. It's the, the consequence is inherent in the action itself. Jesus doesn't break the chain of reaping and sowing. If someone is not a Christian and they drink and someone is a Christian... And they drink, and they both, they, they both are susceptible to the exact same consequences. God doesn't, again, he doesn't break that chain. We reap what we sow. You plant an apple seed, you get an apple tree. You drink too much, you get hungover. You drink too much, you lose control. You act like a fool. That's part of what happens when you do that. God doesn't break that for you. He's not going to break that 
for you. Jesus doesn't save us from the consequences, earthly consequences, of those types of choices. Because we reap what we sow. Those of you who are parents, you you don't do that either. You don't break the chain for your kids. You want them to experience the consequences of their actions. Why? So they don't do it again. Proverbs 26.11 is gross. As a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his or her folly. The way to break that is to allow people to experience the consequences of their sin. Otherwise, we continue to go back and do it over and over and over again. What if God broke the chain and you could drink as much as you want and you were never hung over? Then guess what? You're going to die at 45 of cirrhosis. You're going to die 40 years too young. You're going to become addicted to alcohol and it's going to ruin your life. In a sense, the God allowing you to experience the hangover is his grace. This is what happens when you do that. So don't do it again. Because it's damaging Sins, the, the, the sins that we read about in the Bible, they're not arbitrarily chosen. Those are acts contrary to the will of God. What's the will of God for us to experience abundant life? So anything that hurts us or hurts others, God says that's off limits. Why? Because it's contrary to my will. Why? Because my will is for people to experience abundant life and this is damaging. Drinking too much is damaging to you and to others. Lying is damaging to you and to others. So don't do it. It's not arbitrary. And you reap what you sow. If you lie as a Christian, it's the same results as if you lie as a non-Christian. Your stress level goes up because you have to keep up with all the stories. The quality of your relationships go down because people realize they can't trust you. That happens across the board regardless of your faith because you reap what you sow. And God's not going to break the chain. He doesn't want you returning to your folly. He wants us all to recognize this is damaging. And when I experience the consequence of that choice, it causes me to say, you know, I'm not going to do that again. And it's contrary to the will of God because it hurts me and it hurts others. It undermines his will for me, which is abundant life, or his will for you, which is abundant life. I just want to be clear on that. I think you know that. But to be clear, when we say Jesus saves us from the consequences of our sins, occasionally that is the case. But the rule is you reap what you sow. And if you sow sinful action, you're going to reap rotten fruit, Christian or no. So that's not what Jesus saves us from. So what does he save us from? Two things. He saves us from the penalty of sin. The ultimate danger of sin is not the impact it has on us or even on people we love. The ultimate danger of sin is that it separates us from God. And it's ultimate because it's eternal. The consequences on this earth end when either I die or you die. But the consequences that, are, that uh, affect my relationship with God go on forever. Because he is eternal and ultimately we're all eternal beings as well. And our relationship with him transcends time. And so sin separates us from him. Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. The consequence, the fruit of sin is death. It separates us from God. Romans 3 says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You can see the glory of God as his moral perfection and it's a standard that you don't reach 100% true. You can also see the glory of God as his presence. In the Old Testament, the glory of God is often, uh, the presence of God is often described as his glory. Think of his glory filling, filling the temple. That's his presence filling the temple and we fall short of that. We can't reach it. We can't get near. Because of our sinfulness, we're alienated, we're separated, we're distant from God. Jesus pays that 
penalty for us. He rescues us from that penalty. He delivers us from the danger of sin, which is separation from God. Restores us to well-being, which is relationship with him. Multiple metaphors for sin in the Bible. They all give us a different look at the nature of sin. One of the ones in the New Testament thinks the easiest to grab onto is financial. In Matthew 18, there's a parable of an unmerciful servant. There's a king, and he wants to settle accounts. And he has a servant come to him, and the servant owes him 10,000 talents, 10,000 bags of gold, 20 years worth of work. You're, not, you're never paying that back. And the king says to the servant, this is what you owe me, and it's time to pay up. And the servant says, I don't have it. And the king says, well... I guess I'm going to have to sell all your stuff, I'm going to sell you, and I'm going to sell your wife, and I'm going to sell your kids, and make back some portion of the debt. And the guy says, don't do that, he begs. Don't do that. Be patient with me, I can pay it back. No way. No no way. How do you do that? You can't pay back 20 years worth of salary. It's never happening. Be on him. Cancels the debt and says, you can go. When we sin, we incur a debt with God. And it's a debt that we can never pay back. And that debt separates us from him. It's kind of two different metaphors there. This idea of being indebted to God and being separated from him. And Jesus takes care of both of those pieces. He pays the debt. When we read that the king cancels cancels the debt of this servant, or we read or hear or know that God forgives us, sometimes it can sound like God is minimizing sin. He's dismissing sin. He's winking at it, patting us on the head and saying it's okay. And that, that it couldn't be further from the truth. God takes sin deadly seriously. And you can see that in the Old Testament. It's a different metaphor. There's a lot of blood in the Old Testament. And then a lot of that is blood that's shed at God's command. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. The entire Old Testament sacrificial system was installed to say to people, God takes sin seriously. He takes it so seriously that when you sin, something has to die to make things right. You've got to kill a lamb, or you've got to kill a goat, or you've got to kill a bull. You've got to kill something. And for each sin, there's a different sacrificial requirement. Take some of your livestock, and it's got to be the good stuff. It can't be the, stra- the, the scraggly ones. And you bring it to the priest, and the priest will kill it. And the sh- at the shedding of that blood, that will let you know that God. A lot of blood in the Old Testament. Because without it, there's no forgiveness of sins. That's how seriously God takes sin. And it's, it's the same thing for you. It's how seriously you take it. If you or somebody you love is sinned against if they're wrong. The last thing you would want would be for a judge to say, well, it's okay. You don't need to worry about the fact that you hurt him, that you hurt her. It's not that big a deal. You would be outraged if that was the response, if you were the one or someone you loved was hurt. How much more so for the Lord? He takes sin incredibly seriously and says something has to die in order to make things right. Not because he's bloodthirsty, but because sin is so serious. You have these twin impulses in God, his love that desires relationship with us and his holiness that demands justice for wrong. And Jesus encompasses both of those things. Debt is canceled. We can read in 2 Corinthians 5.19 that God is reconciling the world to himself through Jesus because 
Jesus died. It's not that God winks at our sin or says it doesn't matter. It's that Jesus paid the price that we so richly deserve. Someone has to die for our sin. And the choices are me or somebody else. And if you die for me, then who's going to die for you? You can't trace that back because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so a sinless one comes. And I don't know how the math works, but somehow one can die for all. And his death covers the sins that we've all committed, past, present, future. And that anyone, past, present, future, will ever commit. They're all taken care of by his death. God's reconciling. He's closing that gap. We've all fallen short and we're at this great distance. And through the death of Jesus, this distance has been closed. And reconciliation with God is possible. Not because God doesn't care about sin, because he cares deeply about it. And he chose to pay a price that we can't. The fancy word is substitutionary atonement. Jesus dies in our place. He rescues us from the danger of separation from God. And he restores us to right relationship with God. The penalty of sin has been taken care of. Earthly consequences... No. Eternal consequences. Absolutely. Many of you know that and you live that and you experience that. You know you're forgiven and reconciled to God. You know Jesus also rescues you from the power of sin. Many people I know are Christians. They love the Lord. They're trying their best in some area of their life. Jesus says in John eight thirty four that he who sins is a slave to sin. And that's a reality for people even after They've been set free. They're not living in the freedom that Jesus has purchased for them. Also in 2 Corinthians 5, we read that God is reconciling the world to himself through Jesus. We also read that we're new creations in Christ. The old is gone and the new has come. When Ezekiel and Jeremiah are looking forward to the new covenant, the language they use is we get a new heart. God puts his spirit within us. He writes the law in our hearts. There's 700 or 613 laws in the Old Testament. And what we read in Ezekiel and Jeremiah is you don't, have to, you don't have to worry about them anymore. You don't have to memorize all those. What you need to know is going to be written on your heart. And Jesus sums it up in four words. Love God and love people. And that's all you need to know. And you don't just need to know that. And try to say, okay, how can I do that every day? How can I love God and love y'all? The Holy Spirit lives within me, moves me to keep the law. I'm set free from the power of sin. Mark Neiswinder, some of y'all know him, best example I've ever heard of this. Shopping cart. You've had one before with a bent axle, right? It's frustrating because if you let it go, it crashes into the aisle, crashes into the food. There's a spill and you're embarrassed. That sins. You're forgiven for all of those. As many times as your cart crashes into the food, like you're forgiven. You don't need to worry about that. But God doesn't just forgive us for running into the vegetables. He straightens our axle. So you don't have to do that any longer. Those carts, if you've ever had one, if you push it down the aisle, it's going to run to the left or to the right. The only way to keep it straight is for you to keep your hands on it and to work it. You're fighting with it. That's us. It's not just that we commit sins. It's that our hearts are crooked and we're prone to sin. We're prone to running to the left. Or to the right. And what Jesus does for us, he doesn't just save us from the, con- the, uh, the eternal consequences of crashing. He straightens our axle so we don't have to wreck anymore. 
He who sins is a slave to sin, but you don't have to be that any longer. Jesus adopts you into the family of God. You're not a slave to sin. You're a son or you're a daughter of the king. He sets you free. You don't have to lose your temper every day anymore. Like, you don't have to. He can set you free from that. That's the power of sin. He'll straighten that part of your axle. You don't have to look at pornography anymore. He can set you free from that. You don't have to struggle with unbelief any longer. That's a sin. You know what? There's a, there's a story in, in uh, Matthew, Mark, and in Luke. Jesus comes down from a mountain. And his disciples are trying to heal someone, and they can't. And the dad brings Jesus over and says, here's this boy. We can't do anything. Your disciples can't do anything with him. Help him if you can. And Jesus says, everything is possible if you believe. And he says, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. Even in your unbelief, Jesus can help. For some of you, that is the habitual sin for you, is a lack of faith in God. There's certain areas of your life where you just don't trust him to work. You can be delivered from that sinful attitude. You can be delivered from being judgmental. You can be delivered from not telling the truth. Those things that you find yourself falling back into those same patterns over and over and over again, it's because your axle's bent and Jesus wants to straighten it out. You don't have to sin. You will, but you don't have to. You can be set free. The good news is not just that Jesus died and that he rose again. It's that he also sent his spirit. He pours his spirit out upon us, not just as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, as wonderful as that is, but as an ongoing, empowering presence in our lives. The very power that raised Jesus from the dead lives within us, and he will move you to keep the law. He will move you to love God and to love people. And he will speak to you in the moment. This is what that looks like. It's all not written in here. It was never intended. Every person would ever face forever in a book. God said, I have a better idea. I'll just come and live with you. And I'll walk you through it. And I won't just walk you through it. I'll empower you through it. I'll help you know in the moment what it looks like to love me and love people. And then I'm going to help you do it. Love me and love people. You can be set free from the power of sin. You're a new creation if you're in Jesus. You've been adopted into the family of God. He's conforming you into the image of his son. Do you live that way? Or do you continue to struggle with sinful thought patterns or behavior patterns? Things that you know are contrary to the will of God. And yet you continue to engage in them over and over again. You're like the dog who returns over and over again. You can be set free from that. Not just forgiven so that you can go to heaven when you die. But empowered now to live victoriously. Jesus rescues you from the enslaving power of sin. And he restores to you the freedom that you would have as a son or a daughter of God. Hebrews 4, Jesus means... Uh, is a Greek transliteration of Joshua, the most famous Joshua in the Bible, is the successor of Moses in Hebrews 3 and 4. The writer of Hebrews is talking about Joshua leading the Israelites into the promised land, and the metaphor he uses is one of rest, and he's not talking about a day off. He's talking about ceasing from striving, being able to rest in the work that God has done for us. And he says, and I think it's in verse 9, 
make every effort, make every effort to enter into the rest that God offers you. It's interesting. Make every effort to rest is what the writer of Hebrews says. And then you'll get to cease from your works. This morning, I want to challenge you and encourage you. Make every effort to enter into the rest that God promises you. Some of you are afraid of death. Hebrews 2 says Jesus died so you don't have to be afraid of death any longer. You can know before you leave this room this morning that your future is secure. Jesus paid, Jesus rescues you from the penalty of being separated from God. Jesus pays the debt that you owe. So what God would say to you is, your sins are forgiven. Go. Your sins are forgiven. All of them. Not just the ones you can remember. will commit. It's all done. It's taken care of. All you have to do is cash the check. It's already been written. If you're afraid of death this morning, you can be set free from that. Enter into the rest that God has for you. Some of you are striving. I got to do better. I got to clean this up. I got to quit doing that. Jesus wants to set you free from the power of sin in your own life. He wants you to trust in the work that He's accomplished and for you to recognize it's by grace you've been saved. It's a gift of God, it's not a result of your works. So rest in what He's done for you. And then moving forward, recognize the freedom that He has for you. You're a new creation. You're a son or you're a daughter of the king, and so you can live accordingly. He wants to straighten your axle out. He wants to give you a new spirit, a new heart. He wants to put his spirit within you who will move you to love him and to love others. You don't have to be the guy with the short temper anymore. You don't have to be the girl who gossips about anybody anymore. Those are stereotypes. You don't have to do any of those things anymore. You can get a new heart. And again, he will move you to keep his law. You can be set free from those habitual patterns of thinking and behaving that are contrary to his will and that are doing damage to you and to people that you love. I want to encourage you, make every effort this morning before you walk. Bo's going to sing, and I want you give you a few minutes. I want you just to, before the Lord, you kind of work through some of this with him. Choose your own words. You don't need me to give you the words. But you think about those three categories. Are you afraid of death this morning? You don't have to be. In Jesus, death is a door. It's a necessary evil that God redeems for our good. It's the doorway between this life and forever. You don't have to be afraid of it. Jesus has taken the sting out of it. The wages of sin is death. Jesus collected that for you. If that's you... Prayer simple. Jesus, I want to live. 
I want this abundant life that you promise. The Bible calls it repentance. It's turning from a way that's wrong towards a way that's right. God, I repent of living contrary to your will. I pray you fill me with your spirit to empower me to live in a way that honors you, to love you and to love people. Some of you are striving this morning. You're trying to do better. Would you hear his invitation to rest? To cease from your works. To recognize the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. When he died, he said, it's finished. There's nothing left to be done. Salvation is secured by his obedience. All that's left for us is to receive. Some of you are enslaved. There's an area of your life where sin is winning. And you know it. rescue you from the penalty but from the power of sin as well if you're in Christ you're a new creation if you're in Christ you're no longer a slave to sin you're a son or you're a daughter of the king you can be set free this morning some people in these areas of habitual sin say well it's my cross to bear there's nothing That is so not true. Not even close to true. The cross is the place where sin was dealt with. In sin, you can be delivered and set free. Because Jesus gives you his spirit. Daily. Hourly. at 1 Samuel, the difference between David and Saul, it wasn't necessarily their performances, there was, it was their responsiveness. When David sinned and he was confronted, recognized his need for the Lord, turned towards him when Saul would sin and confronted, he turned away, he resisted, he lied, he blamed, he justified. It's the difference between the two men. There's an area where you know you're struggling, where sin has a foothold. Rather than trying to figure it out on your own, rather than hardening your heart, even with the best of intentions, would you turn towards the Lord this morning? Confess your need. Confess that you're losing. Ask Him for grace and power. So God, would you come and speak into the hearts of every man and woman in this room? Some of you, all of those, you check the boxes. You're walking in freedom and victory in a life. Two, he says, I bring you good news of great joy. And so for you, the prayer may be, God, remind me of this great salvation that you've worked in my life. The freedom that you've purchased for me. Would you stir up within me this Christmas season? A depth of joy that maybe I haven't experienced in years. You guys take a couple of minutes with the Lord and I'll come back in a second.